0: And thanks for listening. All right, if you would, uh, please take a seat. We're going to continue with worship this afternoon. Again, my name is Harrison Ford, one of the pastors. And as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad that you've chosen uh, to worship here this afternoon. I wonder if you've ever had a mountaintop experience. I'm sure that most of us have. A mountaintop experience is... um, when we experience something that is is bigger than ourselves, something glorious, something transcendent, and because of that, it, it draws us outside of ourselves, and as it were, we're kind of caught up in the bigger picture of life. In 2011, I had a literal mountaintop experience. I was living in Romania at the time in one of the valleys of the Carpathian Mountains, and some friends asked me if I wanted to summit with them, uh, the nation's highest peak, Omu. It's about eighty-two, a little north of eighty-two hundred feet. And uh, they asked me before we went. They said, you know, we don't know a lot about from the United, we don't know a lot about the United States, but we know you're from Mississippi, where you, it's really flat. <laughs> so, do you have any height problems? issues with height and i said you know i'm generally speaking i'm fine just as long as i have like a solid footing and i don't think i communicated that well they interpreted solid footing pretty liberally um, because at one point we're literally i kid you not if you want me to give i have receipts i have pictures of this we're literally walking up the side of a mountain (laughs) Uh, on my left is sheer rock wall and on my right is a 3,000-foot drop. And as we're walking up, and we're walking up on a path that is about as wide at its widest point as like a king-sized bed. And we're walking up this path, and I always see these little wooden crosses, and I had the bad decision of asking what those crosses were, and they said, oh, those, that's where people have fallen off and died. Um, so needless to say, not my idea of a great time, But, you know, when we got to that section, when I saw that part that goes up the side of the mountain, I turned to my friend Vlad, which is such a Romanian name. Uh, I turned to my friend Vlad and I said, look, man, I I can't do this. Like, I'm going to hike back down to the cable car and I'll meet you all at the bottom. And he, in, in that kind of Eastern European terseness, he just said, no, you're coming with me. To which I responded, have you brought me up here to kill me? And he uh, responded with silence and just walked away. As it turned out, it wasn't a very elaborate murder mystery. Um, but the, the thing was, Vlad said, at the end of this trail is the most glorious view in all of Romania. And I don't want you to leave the country without seeing it. And so I went, and it, 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 was, it was true. It was more than I could have imagined. You know, it felt like I was on top of the world. I was looking out over entire mountain ranges. I was looking out over cities and over rivers. It was truly glorious. And though my disposition towards heights hasn't changed since then, I would make that hike ten times out of ten just to see that view again and have that glimpse of glory. You know, the lesson I learned that day is this. When glory stands on the other side of hardship, it makes hardship worth it. And please hear me, I don't say that lightly, I don't say it callously, as I'm going to show. I actually say it because I think that's our only hope. When glory stands on the other side of hardship, it makes hardship worth it. And you know, I'm sure that we've all had things in our life that have taught us this lesson as as well. When you hold your newborn child, it it makes the labor and delivery worth it. When you cross the finish line of your first marathon, it makes the months of grueling training worth it. I assume I've never done it. Um, So they say, I've never birthed a child either. Well, in uh, in today's text we're going to see that Jesus is going to give his disciples a mountaintop experience in which he teaches them this very same lesson. He's going to teach them that on the other side of his cross, and on the other side of their cross, is glory. And that glory is going to make the hardship of following him worth it. So if you would, please turn with me to Luke 9. We're going to look at verses 28 to 36. Luke 9, 28 to 36, this is the account of the transfiguration, and a nice little serendipity today in the church calendar is actually Transfiguration Sunday, so there you go. All right, uh, Luke 9, starting in verse 28, now about eight eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you today, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, we looked at the verses immediately prior to this passage, in which Jesus foretells his death, and he tells his disciples that they are going to have their own kind of death too. He says that to follow him, they're going to have to take up their cross, and that if they want to gain their life, they're going to have to lose it. And you can imagine that this left the disciples a little shaken. Come again, Jesus? I have to take up my what? We're going to have to lose my life? What are you talking about? So Jesus, as he always does, he enters into this fear and trepidation. And he he invites his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain to pray with him. And you know, this is a hint that something is about to go down. Because as we're going to see in this passage... There are tons of callbacks to the Old Testament. And a frequent motif in the Old Testament is the mountaintop meeting with God. So while they're up there, Jesus and Peter and James and John, they're going to meet with God the Father, and Jesus is going to give them a glimpse of his divine glory. And in so doing, he is going to reassure them with that glory, that it really is worth it to follow him. You see, this passage is a hinge in the gospel narrative. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, it's inaugurated with this glorious event, this display of glory in which, at his baptism, at which the, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him like a dove, and the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then, now we see in this passage that this is a display of glory, which ends with the Father pronouncing Jesus as his Son. And it's doing so to mark a new chapter in Jesus' ministry. As he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, everything is going to be a descent towards the cross. And this display of glory is what he wants in the back of Peter, James, and John's mind. Because when they see Him on the cross, when they approach their own persecution and death, Jesus wants them to remember this glimpse of glory so that they'll know that it's worth it. So today, I want us to consider this passage looking at four things. A glorious prayer, a glorious plan, a glorious presence, and a glorious pronouncement. Let's start with the prayer. So Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. This isn't out of the ordinary. He he goes away to pray a lot in the Gospels. But something different happens here. In uh, verse 29 it says, As he was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. This, Matthew's gospel actually captures, I think, the drama of the situation a little bit better. He says, there he was transfigured before them. He shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The word transfigured here is the Latin translation of the Greek verb metamorpho, which is uh, the word from which we get metamorphosis. But, except here, Jesus isn't like, a, butterf- or isn't like a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. He's not changing into something new. But rather, in his transfiguration, he's just more fully revealing who he is. Now again, there are so many allusions in this text to the Old Testament. As we read earlier in the service, when Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, he comes back and his face is glowing. It's, re- it's reflecting back the glory that God had shown him when he met with him. In the prophet Ezekiel's vision, he, he looks and he sees a heavenly figure sit, sitting on a throne and when he looks up, it, it, it's like a cloud of, uh, of flames. He says it's like a, a piece of metal that's encased by flames and radiating glory. And then in the prophet Daniel's vision, we see that the ancient of days is described of ha- as having clothes that are as white as snow. And hair that is as pure as wool. And then the psalmist tells us that God covers himself with light as a garment and it's here on the Mount of Transfiguration that we see who all of those passages are talking about they're talking about Jesus Jesus about whom uh, the Apostle John writes is the true light who gives light to everyone Jesus who describes himself as the light of the world Jesus, who Timothy says dwells in inapproachable light. Jesus, about whom John the Revelator says that the new Jerusalem needs no light because the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Early in the chapter, Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And it's here on the Mount of transfiguration, that he gives the definitive, definitive answer. He is the supremely glorious God. Friends, I believe that so much of our apathy in our faith comes from us not being able to apprehend Jesus this way. You know, and you might hear that and you say, well, you know, it's probably because I've never have seen him that way. I wasn't up there with Peter and James and John to see him revealed in that glory. But I want you to listen to what Peter says in his second letter. He's talking about his time uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, For we were with him on the holy mountain, but we have have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place." Of course, he's talking about Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying that that mountaintop experience of Jesus was simply a confirmation of everything that had been prophesied about him in the Old Testament. In other words, what he's saying is that God's Word is its own revelation of the glory of Christ. I mean, think about how the Apostle John describes God in his prologue to his gospel. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. So friends, if we're going to be able to endure the trials and hardships of the Christian life, we have to see that the person calling calling us to this is the supremely glorious Christ. And if we're to see him that way, we have to be in his word. Because that's the place where he reveals to us definitively his glory. As we go on, we learn that Jesus isn't praying alone. Uh, To make the scene even more bizarre, uh, we see that with him are Moses and Elijah, which had been long gone at that point. They are these two uh, major figures of the Old Testament, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And Luke says that they're talking with Jesus about his departure which he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, they're, they're talking about his death here, but what a weird way to say it, his departure, which he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know, when I read that, I thought that's probably how I sounded to Romanians when I spoke Romanian. Uh, rather than saying, I'm leaving, I probably said, I'm about to accomplish my departure. But the language makes more sense when you look at it in the original text. Because uh, the Greek word for departure there is actually, literally, exodus. Elijah and Moses are speaking with Jesus about the exodus that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And you got to think that Moses was probably looking and being like, Hey, that was, that was kind of my thing. You know, stepping on my toes a little bit. But actually, he wasn't, because you see, the the exodus of Moses all throughout the Old Testament is viewed as a precursor to the exodus that the Messiah is going to accomplish when he comes. So, whereas in the exodus from Egypt, God delivers his people from slavery and he gives them this prom brings them over into a promised land. Well, with the Messiah, God is going to deliver his people forever from the curse of sin and, and bondage to Satan and give them an eternal promised land, one that they'll never lose or be driven out of. So what we see here is that the cross of Christ wasn't an accident. This hardship This trial, this suffering that Jesus went through wasn't an accident. It's not God making lemonade out of lemons. It's not a bump on the road to redemption. The cross was always the plan. Even before the beginning of time itself, when the Father made a covenant with the Son to redeem His people. And so the cross doesn't diminish Jesus' glory, but rather... It displays it it exacerbates his glory because on the cross jesus is accomplishing this long-awaited redemption this long-awaited anticipated exodus for his people and friends if this is true of jesus then it's going to be true of us as well the way to glory for Jesus didn't bypass the cross, but it ran through the cross. And the same is true for us. If we're, going to have to, if we're going to ever taste glory, then we're going to have to do it by taking up our cross. Listen to what Peter says in his first letter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You know, I I don't know how the faith was sold to you when you became a Christian, uh, but I think for most of us, it, it wasn't a pitch based on suffering. But that's how the Bible, more often than not, talks about it. To follow Christ means to share in His suffering, to bear our cross to die to ourself, that we might live with him in the resurrection. You know, and I wish that I could give you, and I wish I could give myself an answer why uh, to the particular suffering that each of of us have in our life. But I can't because so much of suffering is a mystery. We'll never understand fully why God allowed the suffering in our life this side of heaven. You know, I think we can give some generalities as to why we suffer. Um, It's how Christ loosens our grip on this world. It's how he heightens our expectation of the world to come. It's how he displays his glory. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met someone who is going through deep anguish, but still remain faithful to Christ. It is the most powerful testimony to the reality of, of what Jesus has done. So, at the end of the day, all, all that we can be sure of is that participating in the glory of Christ means sharing with Him in His sufferings. And so, friends, if you're in here today and you're suffering, I, I want you to know that <laughs> I hope this offers some measure, measure of comfort and hope. Your suffering isn't outside of Jesus' sovereignty. Is it isn't pointless? It isn't meaningless? Because Jesus sufferings, Jesus's suffering was a part of God's glorious plan for him. and so what it means is that our suffering is a part of his glorious plan for us. as hard as that might be to hear. And I recognize that that might sound like gaslighting, you know. oh well, Actually, your, your suffering is just really glory, so you should learn to be okay with it. That's not what I'm saying. I think as we go through the text, you'll see why. As we continue on, we see that this hike up the mountain had obviously taken all day because they get to the top and it's nighttime, and the disciples fall asleep. And they do so before Jesus was transfigured. and they, So they wake up in the middle of the night to this glowing light like they would never seen before. This glorious, bizarre moment of Jesus radiating the glory of God, talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter, you know, Luke says he didn't know what he was talking about. Peter says, hey, Jesus, we should make some tents. Uh, he said, we need to make tents for you and Moses and Elijah. We need this. this is good for us. Let's stay here. And I would love to talk to you about why he said this, but I just don't have time Uh but it's so fascinating. So if if you want to talk about that, just find me after the service. But then Peter says that, and then a cloud covers them, and it says that the disciples were afraid. In one of the other gospels, it says they were terrified. Now a cloud coming. If you've ever spent time in the mountains, you know that like clouds rolling up on the mountains is. It's nothing new. They, these disciples had obviously been in mountains before where there were clouds. So what's going on here? Why is this so terrifying? Well, it's so terrifying because this isn't, this isn't any old cloud. This is what's called the Shekinah glory cloud. It's the glorious presence of God the Father settling on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, Old Testament allusions. All throughout the Old Testament we see that when God shows up with his people, he's described as coming in a cloud. When he leads the Israelites through the wilderness, he's a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When he meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, a cloud descends upon them. The prophet Ezekiel's vision, he has this vision of heaven opening up, and when he looks up into it, he sees a a fiery cloud. So what we're seeing here is that the very presence of God the Father is settling on Jesus and Peter and James and John. And what it's communicating to them is that God is with them in all that they are about to face. Remember I said this is marking the second chapter in which Jesus is going to start that long, slow descent to the cross. Well, you know what? God is saying, I am with you He's reaffirming the old covenant promise. I am with you and I'll never leave you. And friends, if you're in here today and you're in Christ, that very same promise is yours. Jesus doesn't look at you and says, yeah, you know, you, you got your cross. You, you handle that. I've got my own stuff. I'll take care of this. You take care of yours. No. He's with you. He's given you His Holy Spirit who lives inside of you so that you know that when you're in the depths of suffering, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's this never-failing presence of God that allows us to endure the suffering that comes from following Christ, from sharing in His suffering that we might share in His glory. Think about what the psalmist says. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I'll fear no evil. For you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then finally, we, as we move on in the text, we move from this, uh, we, you know, a glorious prayer, a glorious plan, a glorious presence, and we, what we find is a glorious pronouncement. We find that God saying uh, yet again, This is my Son, my chosen one. And it's here we see that this is the source of Jesus' glory, the love of the Father for him. Jesus, you know, I heard one pastor say that Jesus here is radiating the, the love of the Father in the same way that someone who just fallen in love radiates with the love of the person they've fallen in love with. It's, it's being alive with the glory of love. That's what's going on. That's why Jesus is shining. Is because the perfect, pure, unfettered love of the Father is with him in that moment. And in a passage that is so full of wonder, friends, I think this is the greatest wonder of them all. Because when we hold this up against the rest of the New Testament, what we find is that wonder of wonders, but that love is ours as well. Because Jesus makes us sons and daughters of the King. God, because of our union with Christ, looks at us and says, This is my child with whom I'm well pleased. The love that He radiated on the Mount of Transfiguration is fully yours now because of your connection to Christ. And so united to Him, we really and truly have a share in His glory. It's not metaphorical, it's real. The Apostle John writes this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Beloved, we're God's children now, and we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we too are His children, we too share in His glory. So friends, when we're talking about being a Christian, we're not talking about just being a good person. We're not just talking about believing some kind of theological truths. We're not even just talking about having your sins for forgiven. The end game of following Christ is nothing short, in, uh, is nothing short of participating in the very life and fullness and glory of Jesus Christ himself. Just as a man and a woman are made one flesh in marriage, so too the believer and Christ are made one through their union together through faith. And it's this that is the glory of the gospel. And friends, this is the glory that you were made for. You were made for this glory. You were made in the very image of God. He says in Genesis, you're the apex of His creative activity. You've been bought by the Son, united to Christ. You've been declared a, a daughter or a son of the Most High. This, by virtue of your new birth, this glory is your birthright. But so often we settle for such less than this. Consider what C.S. Lewis says. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. You know, when I wanted to turn around on that hike in Romania Vlad wouldn't let me. He wouldn't let me because he didn't want me to settle for less. He wouldn't let me because he wanted me to experience that glorious view. Well, friends, in a similar way, Jesus stands before you today offering his glory. And he doesn't want you to settle for less. So take up your cross. Follow him into his suffering, but know that on the other side of it is glory incomprehensible. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible text. That because of our union with Christ, we share in his sufferings, but we also share in his glory. Father, we are so numb to this. I am so numb to this. Today, through your Holy Spirit, would you, like Jesus did here with Peter and James and John, would you unveil to us a bit of your glory? And through it, would you help us to follow you into the sufferings of life, knowing that on the other side is unspeakable glory? We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.